Welcome to Calvary Chapel Faith Fellowship with Pastor Jim Swiger. Let's turn our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 as we continue in our study of the book of Colossians. And remember last week we left off in verse 13 and 14 where Paul essentially was sharing what I like to call gospel verses. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And again, gospel verses, which I love uh, from the Scriptures. And be reminded, when Paul was writing this letter, no doubt he was wanting these newer believers in Colossae to uh, grow in their faith. But he's also, and we're going to begin to see today, and how Paul was combating against the false teaching that was filtering into the church, as we know from Gnostics. And remember, as Paul, when he's sharing these things, when he shared those verses 13 and 14, it wasn't like Paul was sharing the gospel to get a response from the believers in the Colossians. He was describing essentially two different kingdoms. And we briefly touched on this last week. But remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And remember that we essentially have two kingdoms here on earth. We have the kingdom of light. That is the kingdom of God, kingdom of Jesus, as Christ is our, our king, the king of our hearts. And then there is also the kingdom of darkness, um, which we know is the kingdom of the enemy. And when you look at what's going on in the world today, we're seeing the battle between these two different kingdoms being played out right here on earth. Certainly it's always been in the spiritual world and certainly at times played out here on earth, but we're seeing the battle take place. Um, so as Paul was writing to them, uh, reminding them then of these two different kingdoms, he's pointing to Jesus, and we're going to see this more clearly, all the emphasis is going to be on Jesus because the Gnostics believed that Jesus was not God. In a nutshell, that was the foundation of their belief, that Jesus was a created being. And we know that that is not true. The scriptures clearly point out that Jesus is God. And we know that uh, even remember when Jesus was in Capernaum and he was talking to the scribes and um, you know he told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And remember what the scribe said? It is only God who can forgive sins. And so there, when you get those that might say, well, where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? You won't see essentially that phrase, but you'll see other phrases certainly pointing to Jesus being God. 
And so, uh, again, the Gnostics denying the true humanity of Jesus, pointing to the fact that, you know, in their belief that he's not deity, and we'll get into more of that in the next couple of weeks. But ultimately, if Jesus is not God, where does that leave us? Well, our faith is in vain. Our faith is nothing. And we know that that's not true. And so rather than, interesting as we come now to verse 15, rather than seeing Paul do a deep dive in refuting Gnosticism, his emphasis was, and the Lord wants us to see, emphasis on the person and work of Jesus the Christ. So Father, we come before you just giving you thanks for another morning to gather together, Lord. What a blessed privilege it is as the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel Faith Fellowship. Lord, we gather to worship you, to fellowship. And now, Lord, we certainly pray for your Holy Spirit to enlighten us with your word, to remind us of these awesome, amazing truths of who our Savior is, the, Jesus the Messiah, the one who was sent into this world, going to the cross to die for our sin and be buried and, and raised again. And so, Lord, we, we pray now for your Spirit to uh, just clear our minds and our hearts that we would focus on our wonderful Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's pick up then in verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now that is an amazing verse right there in and of itself. He is the image of the invisible God. Christ is preeminent. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul's declaring here, and again, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that Jesus the Christ makes visible the unseen God. Right? And the Greek word for image here is icon, where we get our English word icon. And, you know, when we think about an icon being a portrait of something, we have to admit that even, even in a portrait or a picture of something doesn't give us the full uh, description of that image. And we must say, the Bible does say throughout the Word that uh, God is invisible. No man can see Him, but we also uh, pick up on a couple scriptures from this. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and forever. And then also Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, describing Moses when he left Egypt. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. But we also know from the scriptures that Jesus being the image of God, also gives to us who God is and what God is alike. Think about back in John chapter 1 and verse 1. Some powerful scriptures pointing to Jesus being who he claimed to be, God. John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then what about John chapter 1, verse 14 that says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then what about John chapter 1, verse 18 that says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And then remember in John chapter 14, verse 9, when Jesus talking to uh, Philip, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So again, going back to Colossians then, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul is pointing to Jesus as he is God. And we're going to see further description of this. We, uh, and remember uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the phrase here in the King, uh, New King James, it says, express image. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. He is God. And then we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to continue, the firstborn over all creation. Now the false teachers of the day, as they do today, interpreting Jesus as a created being. They essentially said that Jesus had an influence of God, but he was just a created being, successing down, and then uh, being a, a, a created being. But we know that Jesus, and what the meaning here is, he is creator. Everything in space and in the heaven and on earth, Jesus is the creator of all spiritual beings. And there's cults even today, like the Jehovah's Witness, claim that Jesus is an angel, right? a created being. And other cults as well believe that. But when we rightly translate the by him here, it's in him, or excuse me, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn, what does that speak of? Because when you think about yourself, I don't know how many here are the firstborn of their family. How many here are the firstborn of their family? Not quite a few of you. How many are the babies? Wow. Well, if we have more, so we've got to tame it down here. But firstborn speaks of, in the Greek, it speaks of priority and sovereignty. Priority meaning Jesus existed prior to creation. He is eternal. Sovereignty pointing to Jesus as creator, the originator. He is creator. And also throughout the Old Testament, we know from the language of firstborn, referred to the heir over his brethren, referring to being first in the rank. So when we think of Jesus being firstborn, it's not as a created being. He is the creator. Verse 16 then. For by him, better said, for in him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is creator. 
the creator of all things. He created the universe. Everything in space and heaven and in earth, Jesus created. And this points to a couple things because the Greek philosophers of the day, as philosophers today also, look when they, for by him all things were created, they don't look as one, as creator, as God. This is interesting. In their own philosophy, in something to become into existence, there has to be a primary cause, which is the plan. And then there is the instrumental plan or instrumental cause, and that is power. And then we have a final cause, which is purpose. And in Jesus the Christ, being the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, he being you know, the us in Genesis chapter 1, being the creator, we could say then that Jesus, in his godhood, planned with the Father and with the execution of the Holy Spirit of all creation. The plan. And also the power. Power speaking of creating something out of nothing, ex nihilo. And then also the purpose. What's the purpose of all creation? What's the purpose for you and I even being created? Well, for the pleasure of Jesus, the Christ. And when it comes to creation, Jesus being that primary cause, being the instrumental cause, being a final cause, having the power again to create something out of nothing, we have to ask ourselves why. And this is the the question for all of mankind who has to answer this question. In fact, when we think of the two different kingdoms, right? The kingdom of man, the kingdom of God. Kingdom of man cannot in any way subject to a holy, righteous, true, living, just God. It's out of their mind. They cannot come to that place where they can submit to God. And that's the problem, right? Because you, the two kingdoms, kingdom of man, kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, man submits to God. In the kingdom of man, man submits to no one but himself. But man has to answer three questions. And they have to do so coherently. How did we get here? Not driving in this morning and zigzagging those bike riders. <laughs> But how did we get here on earth? We also have to answer the question, what is purpose? What is man's purpose? And then also, what is man's destiny? Those are three questions that every person has to answer to frame their worldview. And for it to be true, it has to logically, coherently, exist without any contradictions or any flaws. And I submit to you that the only thing that could possibly be logic is a God who has created man for his own purpose. And when we look at throughout Scripture, especially Psalm 2, remember Psalm 2 that speaks of all the nations coming against God and coming against the Messiah? We see this being played out today. The, the battle that's taking place between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Jesus will sit on his rightful throne one day. 
and we will be there with him. We know that's the destiny of man. And we have the answers of, from a theistic worldview, we have the answers of why we are here and how we got here and what's our destiny. Speaking of zigzag, every other worldview has to zigzag and it can't, can't come to a coherent conclusion. And so Paul's pointing to Jesus as the creator. He's created all the spiritual beings, demons. And uh, when you think of Satan, Satan is a created being. Amen. Remember, he was the worship leader. And then he fell, wanted to be like the most high God. But he is a created being. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. Interesting, before all things speaks again, Jesus being eternal. And sometimes we got to be careful with our children, when, well, some of us are grandchildren now, when we think about Christmas and Jesus being born in the manger. Absolutely, he was born in the manger in the flesh. But Jesus is eternal. He created the heavens and the earth. And it says here that he holds or in him all things consist. Now, I, I didn't do well in science in school. I did good in gym class and study hall and that type of thing, but um, science wasn't my, my thing. But when you think about all the things that's going on and you know to hold things together, the atmosphere and the molecules and the atom and all these different things that I really can't explain from the top of my head, what I do know is that Jesus holds it all together. And I also know there's going to be a day when it's like, okay. Well, how do I say that? Well, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, or look on the screen. Second Peter chapter 3, and let's begin in verse 9, where it says, again, pointing to Jesus holds all things together, or he... Uh, in him, all things, you know, together, consisting together. He's holding it together. But we also have to understand that this earth is going to go under a judgment. We have a holy, righteous God. He is a loving God. But the truth of it is, there is going to be that day of judgment. Verse 9 of Second Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I believe we looked at that scripture last week. This is the Lord's desire, that all would come and turn from their sin and turn to him to live in the purpose that he has for man. But then it says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So if we believe that Jesus is the creator, 
we also must believe the rest of the scriptures that there will indeed one day be judgment. Back to Colossians. Verse 18 says, And he, Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So we see firstborn from the dead. And we know this is speaking of Jesus and his resurrection. When Jesus was on earth, he raised from the dead. But then we know that others also raised from the dead. But the difference between Jesus and others, others died again. Jesus did not die. Jesus rose in the eternal, glorified, incorruptible, physical body. But interesting, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. What well, was the church? Is the church eternal? Essentially, we'll have eternal life, but the church had a beginning at Pentecost, but the church has always been in mind of the Lord. We see in the New Testament, throughout Paul and others sharing the mystery of the church or the body of Christ, but it's revealed through the scriptures. Again, I love just thinking about the body of Christ. We are so unique in the realm of God. And so we are, we are the redeemed. And interesting, Jesus as the head of the church, then we see that Jesus is preeminent in all of creation. He's preeminent in... Uh, you know, all of the created. He's also preeminent over having priority in his church. And I love the last two chapters of Colossians. We'll, we'll see Paul encourage the church and we'll see the Holy Spirit encourage us as a church. What are we supposed to do as a church? What's, what's our calling as a church? Well, you'll have to come back in a few weeks, I guess, to... Now, so many things, and Paul, we'll just dive into so many things, but again, the body of Christ, Jesus preeminent over the body of Christ. We have a special place in the will of God. So all of these things, Paul, bringing up, really combating the, you know, the, the false teaching of Jesus not being deity. And we see here in verse 19, he says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now, sometimes we can read over these scriptures, but that says a lot. Every one of these just verses we could chew on and meditate and just give God glory that he's revealed himself to us, that, that we might have the Holy Spirit to understand these things. These aren't scriptures that you just open up as a non-believer or you, know, you open this up and then you understand it. Even for us as believers, having the Holy Spirit, we need to chew on it. And I think when you ultimately see what Paul is doing here, it's not just to combat the hearsay or the false teaching. This is worship. This is worship when we read Scripture and the Lord shows us in magnificent ways the glory of God through His Son Jesus, that He is Creator, that He has preeminence over all. And here it says, fullness. And this was directed, I believe, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is truly combating the false teaching, the fullness. Remember, 
They believed that Jesus had an influence from God, but not being God. And when Paul says fullness, this is implying deity, that Jesus is fully God. We also know that Jesus is fully man. Do we fully comprehend that? Not really. But we can take it by faith and look that Jesus is the man whom God sent, and he is the Son of God. He is man, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And it speaks dwell here. All the fullness should dwell. Dwell speaks of a permanent home. And so what Paul was saying here, the Lord is saying again, Jesus the Christ, the sum total of divine attributes and power, all rooted in the Son, Jesus. In him, the fullness of deity dwells. The fullness. Verse 20 says, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Reconcile or reconciliation speaks of restoration to friendship and to harmony. And we know that man needs to be reconciled, right? In the garden, Adam and Eve sinned, brought sin into the world, right? Really, two kingdoms then. God wants to reconcile through his son. He wants to restore mankind. That's his desire. Just as we looked at the scriptures last week, God's will, his desire, is for no man to perish, but come to the faith in him through repentance. But we see here Jesus reconciling all things to himself. All things. Does all things mean all things? It means all things. We don't need a Bible commentary. We don't need to understand Greek, although it's helpful at times. All things is all things. And the entire creation in the garden after sin was thrown into turmoil. And how many of you in the last couple of years anyway have gone through the checkout lane of whatever grocery store you go to, Walmart, Target, whatever, and just hear somebody say, well, what in the world is going on? Have you heard that? Well, we know what's going on. There's turmoil in the world. But God still wants to reconcile the world. God's plan of redemption for man is still in progress. It, it's not failed. Jesus still went to the cross to die on that cross for man's sin. And that whoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as we know, the time is very short here on earth. That time is coming where Christ will come for his bride and will be with him in glory. And things will be made right. And that's all through scripture. And that's the glorious majesty of the King Jesus Christ. One day he will sit on his throne. But it doesn't mean that everybody is going to be reconciled. What it means is that God in his plan has made possible, removed all the barrier that could place in front of man, it's now available to come to him and for God's plan to be completed in a person's life. That we might come to him and be reconciled to him. It's all about Jesus. 
And it's all about the cross, the person and the work of Jesus and what he did. And look what Paul, I love how he, how he puts this here. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. I remember years ago when the emergent nonsense was entering into the church and there were some famous authors that uh, ended up coming to the conclusion that the cross is just too messy. A holy God would not send his son to the cross to shed his blood. Now, do you have a problem with that? We have a problem because all through the scriptures, we see of the cross, the Lamb of God who went to the cross to shed his blood where you and I have redemption in that blood. Anytime man tries to mess with the gospel, it gets, that's messy. The cross is love because it's fulfilling God's plan of reconciliation, restoration. And the result is, and think about your own life, your personal life, the moment you came to Christ. Well, your circumstance may have never changed. But think about what took place the moment you received Christ as your Savior. The very moment that you said yes to God. Thank you, Lord, for revealing your Son. I believe that you sent him for me to die on that cross. And I believe that he was buried. I believe that he rose again. I believe my sins are forgiven. The freedom that took place. The peace now that we can have with God. With, without the shedding of blood, we, we have no peace with God. You know, the world wants world peace. There's never going to be world peace. World peace. The only peace that man needs is peace with God. Individually, as a human race. When we came to Christ, this is the result. We had peace with God that brought harmony with God. We were fulfilling what God desires, that we would have that relationship with him. And we were able to worship him. That's why it's kind of crazy you see the modern church get away, do away with all the crosses in their buildings. You can't do away with the cross of Jesus Christ. It's always there. In verse 21, and says, and you. Now, when I sit and read this, and when it says, and you, that's like, okay. Paul's talking about them. Now he's really talking about the Colossian believers and you and I. The Holy Spirit says to you, and you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. And of course, this speaks of our condition before we came to the Lord. How many thought you were a good person before you came to Jesus? And all of our hands go up. <laughs> right? Because that's man's way. That's the deception of the enemy, that we're good, that somehow we deserve eternal life in heaven. We didn't understand how we stand before a holy, righteous God and we stand guilty because of our sin. And ultimately, as it says here, we were alienated from God. We were spiritually dead to the things of God. 
nowhere in the Bible does it say that we're good. But isn't it interesting when we go out and pray with people, we ask them if they need prayer, the number one answer is, no, I'm good. So right away that should trigger us. We know what to pray for them. They don't even know, but they told us their prayer request. There's none good but him. And alienated simply means and literally speaks of being transferred to another owner. Because of original sin, we're in that before we came to Christ, we were part of another kingdom. We were, we were under Satan's ownership. He owned us. It was manifested in the things that we did, how we lived, how we lived for self, and separated from God. Now, I know some of your testimonies in the Lord. And some of you weren't as much a heathen as some of us were, I would say. But nevertheless, we lived in that kingdom of darkness. We needed Jesus to be transferred into the kingdom of, the, of light. And it's interesting if we, uh, in John chapter 3, Jesus spoke of this. In John chapter 3, we remember John chapter 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's just, wow, man, that's a lot there. Praise God, I love that verse. But then let's look at what Jesus continued to say. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, rescued. The world needs to be transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. He who believes in him is not condemned. That's believers, that's us. We're not condemned. Our, our payment was dealt with at the cross. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation. Listen to this. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may clearly seen, be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Again, it goes back to those two kingdoms, doesn't it? Paul says we were alienated, but in Christ Jesus we have been reconciled. Verse 22 says, In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So again, this is, this is one of these meaning of life verses here. The big picture verse, verses that I love to say. To present you holy. Jesus came to die on the cross that whoever believes in him, that he presents to the Father holy, meaning separated from the world. We are holy. No matter how you felt this morning when you got out of bed or the trials that you may have faced already this morning, 
the Lord says you're holy. Bless you, by the way. And then also, blameless. It's not too often I, I feel blameless. Except in the realm of God. Is that blameless speaks of without blemish. Remember as they brought the sacrifice animals, they were to be without blemish. And for you and I, this is how the Lord sees us. We are blameless in Christ Jesus. With Christ, we are, are blameless. And then above reproach, meaning free from accusation. Once we've been reconciled to God, we are no longer uh, can be accused for anything because he's, he's paid the payment that, that we owe to God. He did that at the cross. But how often does the enemy accuse us? A lot. That's a deception is the way of the enemy. A master liar, a murderer, a thief. And he presents us holy and blameless and above reproach to the Father. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is a fascinating scripture for you know, receiving exhortation from the Holy Spirit. Paul certainly reminding them, Colossian believers, but this is what the Holy Spirit says to you and I. He tells us that we are above reproach, we are blameless, we are holy, we have been reconciled to him, And then we get the encouragement to walk in that. Perseverance is such a witness for the faith, witness of the Lord. And I'm sure the enemy, through his deception and wanting to accuse us of things from time to time, he wants us to doubt who we are in Christ. Anybody get that from the enemy? You can't possibly be a believer after what you just did, or what you just thought, or the way that you act. Remaining in the faith, continuing to follow him, is great evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you've had doubts of your faith, you're not the first one. If you ever thought about, I just got to throw it all in. Life, life was easier as a non-believer. Somehow Satan wants us to believe that from time to time. But we have to remember the big picture. The plan of God. That in the faith as we are grounded and steadfast and persevering, not moving away from the hope that we have. And praise God, the hope's not in ourselves. The hope is in God of what he's done. Again, continuing on in the faith is the greatest test of, for truly following the Lord. Now, back in verse 19, Paul said, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. I find that very interesting and um, 
as I was reading uh, the other morning in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, it touches on the father being pleased with the son. It pleased the father for the fullness of deity to be in the son. Well, what's that mean? Again, something to chew on, to meditate on, to you know, think about God and what he's done for us. In Isaiah 53.10, it says, and we're familiar with Isaiah 53, right? 700 years before Christ came to this earth, God spoke through Isaiah the prophet, speaking of the Messiah, the anointed one going to the cross to bear the sin, the punishment for man's sin. In verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin and shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So when we think about what Paul and what we just read in Colossians, yes, we understand that Jesus, the fullness of deity, dwells in him. But it pleased the Father that he would send his Son and that Jesus would be the propitiation to holy, righteous God. It pleased the Father that Jesus suffered that death on the cross because it fulfilled his plan of his love, his grace, and his mercy to a man who's rejected him. And there is no man or woman that has ever been too far gone from the mighty right hand of God because it's his plan. And as we read these scriptures, today is the most perfect day then to partake of the Lord's Supper. Again, when Paul wrote this, certainly combating the, the false teaching that was coming, starting to come into the church, I kind of picture Paul writing this with a huge smile on his face as he knew those Colossian believers perhaps would be suffering, the false teaching coming on, no doubt as we saw him uh, in chapter 1, praying for them. He prayed for them. But also in his heart, magnifying and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we think about the fullness of deity dwelling in the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing what he's done for us, that he is the one who transferred us into the kingdom of light, that we might just have more reflection this morning on who Jesus is and what he's done. This morning we are going to partake of the cup and we're so reminded uh, how essential and certainly commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ for us to partake of communion, what we call communion, and to do so in a way that's pleasing to the Lord that we don't take it lightly, 
when we are reminded for what communion is. When we take of the cup and we take of the, the juice, we're reminded that this isn't the actual body of Christ. This isn't the actual blood of Christ. But these are used by Jesus himself to point to himself as he instituted the, uh, the new covenant. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. In, in the bread, it portrays the body of Christ. And we think about the body that was broken for you and I on that cross. As we read in Isaiah 53, his body broken, the suffering that took place for him. The father was pleased to send him, his son to that cross. We also know that Jesus is the bread of life. And as believers, we know that Jesus is no longer on the cross. He's at the right hand of the father. And as we partake of the bread, he is the bread of life. He is the one who sustains us as believers. And we can take that to the bank, per se, because who we believe Jesus is, he is the Christ. He is the one who was sent. He is God. This morning, we recognize him and honor him by taking of the bread. And the scriptures say, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we recognize again that this is not the actual blood of Christ. There is no transubstantiation taking place. It doesn't change. But we honor and remember we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And remember the word redemption. We have been bought back. We were once part of Satan's kingdom, but we've been bought back into the kingdom of God through the shedding of his blood. We also connect with this, with Jesus in the future, as it says here, with you in my Father's kingdom. We're honoring the King of kings and Lord of lords, remembering what he's done for us and remembering what he's promised for us. Let's take the cup. Well, praise the Lord. I pray that you have a most awesome week if the worship team wants to come up that you will walk in God's promises, his love for you. Don't let the enemy deceive you. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Be in the word of God. I also want to, want to remind you that would be a place of prayer, that we would be a body of believers, that we would recognize at all times prayer is important. That's why we're starting new you know, prayer email list and all these things. We want everybody to understand that anytime prayer is available through the body of Christ here. We want to include this 
on Sunday mornings. As we go to this last song, worshiping the Lord, we're going to have members of uh, the church here, not members because we don't have membership, but people of the church who are designated to pray with one another. And we want to encourage you. I hope you've been free just by taking communion. The Lord's given you strength. But if you're going through anything, go to these people who are designated to pray. There'll be different time, different people every week, and we need to be praying people. And as the body of Christ, we need to rely on one another. We're a family. It's not just a church, as we know church is. We are a family. Amen? Can you stand with me? Father, we come before you this morning once again. We want to continue to honor you through this last song of worship, Lord. May you be glorified in all that we say and do, even as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name.